Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Pediatric medication use is complicated. The use of potentially inappropriate medications in this population only amps up the risks. Today on Verified Rx, I'm joined by two authors of the 2020 Kids List who aim to address the issue of potentially inappropriate medications in pediatric patients. Dr. Rachel Myers, clinical professor at Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and pediatric pharmacist at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center, and Dr. David Hoth, pharmacy director, acute care at Children's Minnesota. I'm Gretchen Brummel, pharmacy executive director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Rachel, tell me a little bit about your background and your professional journey. Thanks, Gretchen. I've been working as a faculty member at the Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy at Rutgers for about 15 years now. I'm one of the clinical faculty, and I have a practice site at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey, where I practice mainly in the pediatric ICU, but also the general pediatric floors. And I also have a couple of children. They add a lot of perspective into my life as a pharmacist. And Dave, how about you? I have been practicing pediatric pharmacy for over 30 years, and for the last 25 years, I've spent it at Children's Minnesota. I'm currently serving as pharmacy director for acute care at Children's Minnesota, and I have responsibilities over both hospital campuses, the inpatient pharmacies. I've served mainly in the capacity of a clinical leader and clinical director over those years, and now I'm more operational. I've worked and precepted with pharmacy students and residents, and I've also been fortunate to have been able to serve in a number of committees, both in the hospital and across the system on medication safety work and value stream safety work in kids. I've always had an interest in medication safety and reducing the risks for the kids that we serve. Thank you both for your backgrounds. Rachel, what is the kids list? Simply put, the kids list is a list of medications and excipients that are potentially inappropriate in kids. What we did is basically an extensive literature search so that we could drill down on those medications that had documented risks in kids. When we created the list, we really wanted to create something that was similar to the beers list for geriatric patients, but it identified those medications that had higher risks in the pediatric population. We should really stress that there were some medications that had risks in both kids and adults, and those medications were excluded. For example, the fluoroquinolones. We know there are a lot of side effects with those drugs. We really couldn't find great evidence that they had increased risk in kids compared to adults. Those risks are out there but not an increased risk in kids. And that's what we tried to do with the kids list is really pull out those medications that were of a higher risk in children and also excipients. We found some examples of excipients that had risks in adults as well. Those would not be included. What we ended up with was a list of medications and excipients that we hope practitioners can use when they're making clinical decisions about patients. And we give them the references and information that we found so that they can then take our recommendation, but also make decisions of their own. Because sometimes even if the drug is on the list, the benefit may outweigh that risk. We really hope that what we've ended up with is a solid reference for practitioners to use when they're making decisions about medication therapy in kids. Insightful explanation. Thank you. Dave, why was this needed? 
the kids list began as an idea many years ago when I first became a pediatric pharmacist. With all new leaders in any profession, one of the first things you want to do is investigate what's unique about the population that you serve. And so I tried to gain a greater understanding of what was happening in pediatrics. One of the items that I came across was there were certain medications that seemed to carry a greater risk in kids than in adults. I had a very short list coming out of pharmacy school, but I learned additional medications that we should use caution in children from other practitioners, other pharmacists and other physicians and nurses. It's kind of like an oral tradition. It's handed down from generation to generation in the pre-internet age. Information was not as readily available or accessible. What we did was, with the best intentions, but really not very well supported by the literature at all, it might be an amounting of someone's personal experiences, or there might have been some pivotal studies that stuck in somebody's brain. We just basically took it on faith. We took it on truth, and that verbal interaction from that other individual was the truth, and we went with it. Each of us, through the years, built a list in our own heads. And that list, as I found out over time, is very unique to the individual, and it wasn't very evidence-based. It occurred to me that somebody probably published this thing and I just need to go find that reference and then I'll have the list, right? The authoritative list. Such a document didn't exist in spite of speaking with my colleagues, going to national meetings and asking these very learned people and they just didn't know. It occurred to me that we needed to have a list that was evidence-based, competent, and definitive that clearly showed medications that carried with it a higher risk of harm to the child versus the adult population very distinctly. We needed a benchmark or a standard that could be taught to new leaders and shared with experienced leaders alike so that we could align with each other for the bettering of our patients. So this is a concept that has been brewing for a while, it sounds like. How did you pull this together? What was that process like? You're right. I had this idea in my head for about 25 years because I was committed to it, a little obsessed, maybe a little bit. And the students who I've had would remember this. On day one, I always assigned to them, give me five drugs you don't use in kids and why. I just want to know the mechanism. I want you to tell me why. Just to give them something. Over time, it just kind of became frustrating to me that we just didn't have a list. You know, the beers list came and went, and there was no peds list, no comparable list. And I think we really deserve to have one of those. I decided I would do it myself. And I thought I'd do it internally as a piece of work in our own hospital. I worked with one of our pharmacy residents and even created a draft and immediately realized this just did not carry the weight. It was not the direction it needed to go. I did approach the board of the Pediatric Pharmacy Association to see if they would commission the work and help support that, which they did. That's really where the kids list got going officially is with board endorsement at PPA. The board recommended some individuals that they thought would be good on the expert panel. And I had a few folks that I was thinking of as well. Strategically, it was important to find pediatric pharmacy experts that were both members of PPA and would speak up in a group setting. We didn't want wallflowers. We wanted seasoned people. We were looking for people that were diverse enough from their perspectives and backgrounds to cover a range of medication subspecialties, including general pediatrics, neonatal and pediatric critical care, cardiology, hematology and oncology, and the ambulatory MTM clinic setting. And even among those members, they represented areas that some of them were direct, sharp-end, patient-facing individuals. 
Some had some academia role in their careers, and others had some current or recent leadership experience. We had quite a diverse group, and you think I'm talking about 100 people here, but in the end, we just have seven people. We wanted to keep the group small enough so that it could be nimble, agile, able to move quickly and move in different directions. We were able to source out work, do work between our meetings, and able to quickly come to decisions that allowed us to move along. It was a really large project, took, I don't even know how long, a couple of years at least. So monthly meetings, lots of homework in between, and we divided and conquered and everybody pulled their weight there. But in the end, we had a draft. It was vetted by experts. It was vetted by the community of members of PPA, and then it was released. It was let go. I'm hoping that that process brought to us a thoroughly vetted and evidence-based tool with limited reasons for others to object. It's based on published literature. We did what we needed to do to get good information. For example, we had a lot of debate about the SSRIs and their appropriateness. At one point, we reached out to a psychiatrist and a pharmacist that worked in a clinic just to get their take on it as well to add to our conversation. But I really want to stress just how important the feedback from the members of the Pediatric Pharmacy Association was. We sent out a survey, we sent out the rough draft, and we read their comments. It was just so helpful. It was just such a better document for it. So that was a really important piece. We followed the basic process, the blueprint laid out by the Beers criteria. Honestly, we laid it out and we said, okay, this is what they did. This is what we're going to do. It was very much mirrored on their approach. We used the grade approach for our strength of our recommendations. And we used the Prisma strategy to identify key articles that would eventually percolate and filter down to the whole expert panel. So we followed the same procedures. That's a fascinating journey, and I'm so glad that you were able to take this across the finish line. And speaking of the beers criteria, Rachel, how does this list compare to some of those adult-focused lists like beers and the stop-start? Right. Sprung from them, um, we recognized how important beers was in the geriatric population. And there's so much literature that has demonstrated how helpful it is in improving medication safety in that patient population. We mimicked their procedures and their methods. We've realized also that kids are equally in need of a similar resource because they have, similar to geriatric patients, unique physiology and pharmacodynamics of medications. They handle medications differently. The biggest difference between them when we came to the end of the project is in the percentage of strong recommendations. In the kids list, it's about 68% of our recommendations were strong. In the beers list, it's 95%. So that should highlight just how much better evidence they had. If you look at the quality of evidence ratings between the beers and the kids list, it's much higher in the beers list. Usually I would say, well, that just means we need more data. That's not a really good answer because guess what? I don't really think any Everybody's going to do a study to test the safety of aspirin in kids so that we can better understand what's going on. Those studies just aren't going to come. We're left with what we have. But hopefully as we move forward with better legislation that we have now where all new drugs are getting looked at for kids, if it's a medication that can be used in kids, we won't have as much of a problem with drugs going forward as we do with some of those older drugs. Rachel, nice explanation there. Beers and stop and start are for elderly and we're for kids. So that's a big difference. 
the stop criteria is a more distilled down version of the beer's criteria. It seems to be designed to be imported or used with an electronic health record so that the provider at the point of decision-making, they can do some clinical decision support on whether or not to use a medication in a given patient and the system flags them for that. It also brings out the importance of how we use the list. Not everything on the list is static. It's not 100% avoid in that population. All of the recommendations in the list ought to be viewed through the lens of risk versus benefit for the patient in the given situation. The STOP criteria do a good job at stopping the clinician to think about what the potential adverse outcomes might be and then make a clear-headed decision on how to proceed. Dave, how really can our clinicians best use the kids list? First, I'd like to give out a shameless plug here. The Kids List is widely available as an open source document at the Journal of Pediatric Pharmacology and Therapeutics, April 2020, Volume 25, Issue 3. For those of you jotting down notes. We will link to it in the show notes, too. PPA didn't want any encumberments, any costs, any fees, any structures, any barriers into getting this information out as broadly as possible. That's how clinicians can use the list. It's accessible. That said, you can memorize the list. In that way, the list might best be used in a learning environment, new practitioner, new residents in pediatrics. I'm a mechanism guy. If I know the mechanism or the reasoning behind the recommendations, it's a lot easier for me to remember the list because I know what goes along with that and what the potential outcomes are. But as quite sharp as clinicians are, just simply putting it in your brain is maybe not good enough. The list could be used more effectively if it's combined with other efforts to improve patient safety, including technology. The medications and excipients on the list could be made readily available in an electronic resource just for quick reference. That would be sort of a minimum, but it certainly could be embedded into clinical decision support in your smart algorithms in your EHR. That way, like the STOP criteria, you have information at the clinician's fingertips, able to make a decision either for or against a medication based on its merits in the clinical situation. That makes a lot of sense. On the flip side of it, Rachel, how should we not be using this list? As with any guideline or tool of this type, we have to remember that it is just that. It's a tool to use when you're making a clinical decision. We have to remember that a lot of the drugs on our list had very low quality of evidence. We made certain to cite all the literature that led us to our decision. If a practitioner needs to make a decision, they can go and look at that literature and make their own decision. It should never be seen as, this is written in stone. It's on the kids list. You can't use it. I just really want to stress that. And then on the flip side of that, if a drug is not on the kids list, that doesn't mean we're endorsing its use necessarily. So that's something important to remember. Just like fluoroquinolones are not on the list, but that doesn't mean we think they're safe in children. It just means that we didn't come to a consensus that there was a higher risk in kids than in adults. We just have to remember what it is and that it's simply a list of medications that could potentially be inappropriate and not necessarily are inappropriate. It's just a tool and we hope that it helps people make some decisions and then it's a one-stop shop, a place to refer to, to remind yourself about a medication. Or simply, if you want to look at the evidence yourself, you have that list. And I would add on that level of evidence piece there. That can have some consequences based on how you decide what you're going to do with any given clinical situation. 
One of the issues that we struggled with when we went through our discussions was whether a medication adverse event was subject to the medication itself, de novo, intrinsic, or whether it was a class effect. If you look through our list, we have 67 drugs or classes. Okay, so some are grouped as classes. We deem it as a class effect and others. We think it's more intrinsic within the medication itself. A good example of these would be the medications that displace bilirubin from albumin in vitro. So we have some medications that readily displace bilirubin and in vivo that would potentially cause kernicterus. That's what we're all worried about, free fraction bilirubin floating around. A couple of medications, sulfamethoxazole and sulfasoxazole, clearly unbind bilirubin from albumin and cause kernicterus, so that we've seen both the in vitro and in vivo effects of that. Ibuprofen lysine is a good example of a drug that displaces bilirubin in vitro, but it doesn't really cause kernicterus in the newborn. So there's an example where the laboratory data does not quite match the clinical data. And then we have other medications, some antibiotics, that we only have the in vitro data. It shows displacement, but we have no corresponding clinical safety data at all. It's the same mechanism, but we'll have different recommendations based on the level of evidence or where the evidence is located. So you have to take those considerations with a grain of salt when you're recommending those therapies in patients. The takeaway that I'm hearing is that there's quite a bit of nuance associated with the recommendations that you made, and the reader really needs to dig in to be able to interpret and assess those nuances for themselves. It also should be noted that at this point, this was published in 2020, and we did our literature search up until, I believe, 2017. So we conducted our literature search to get our initial list of potential articles in 2017. It's now 2022, so it's been five years since we did that literature search. So there may be new information out there that we didn't include because we looked at it in 2017. That's a really great point. So what are your future plans with the list? When we finished publishing the kids list, our author group resolved to provide updates as often as needed and probably something on the order of a cadence of about every five years. That's what we were thinking, just based on the amount of literature that comes in per year. The kids list, just by its existence, has brought into its orbit some other studies that might not have been done, so we might get a little bit more pickup in research. I haven't seen any significant advances that would uh, materially change my mind on the list itself. We certainly will continue to debate the medications on the list. There are those that disagree with us on one medication or another, and I think it's worth weighing the weight of the evidence in those decisions. And I look forward to a critical review when we get up to about the five-year period. We'll definitely look forward to those future updates. What are you seeing out there in terms of any unique projects or changes that have come from the publishing of the paper? To my knowledge, the kids list has been cited by 32 different publications on pediatric medication safety since it was published in April 2020. So that's a fair number of articles that both cite it in a general sense or that there might be a case that links to a medication in the kids list. And that's something we can actually use in the future to help strengthen a recommendation. Some publications cite the levels of evidence found in the kids list in describing the use of individual medications within the list. 
One thing I found very interesting is that the publications that cite the kids list, they're found internationally and quite broadly. I see them in different languages that I can't read, which is great. We'll have to get those translated, but I like to see the broad publication and the different viewpoints and the uptake of the kids list. And it's something that can be used as a standard. If we don't have a reference standard when we're studying something, how do we know if we've improved ourselves? I think the kids list can stand as a research standard. This is a line and then improvements or modifications just make it better and we can move it down the road that way. And I see a lot of different organizations doing that. I did see one publication in JPBT in September from the University of Missouri Health care hospitals cited inappropriate prescribing their health system as it compared to the kids list. This is a great QA project. Hospitals can say, all right, this is the kids list. This is what it recommends. This is what our data says. Where's the gap? And is that gap reasonable? That's a good use of the kids list. And it's also evidence that others could use to use the same quality assurance in their own hospitals. It's fantastic to see that uptake around the world. Rachel, what else are you seeing? I heard from Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Tennessee. They did a project looking at integrating the kids list into their EHR and comparing the alerts that they were getting through their existing EHR system with kids list recommendations. They've been looking at that. I see that integration into the EHR probably coming down the line. I've gotten several emails and talked to a bunch of my local colleagues here in New Jersey about how to implement it at their own hospitals and what would be like the first thing to look for. And I know I've had a couple of pharmacy students doing research projects. They got this assignment when they arrived at their hospital and knowing me as a faculty member, they contacted me for just assistance and advice on their project. Hospitals are paying attention and I think it's a great QA project. Wonderful to see that uptake. What do you want our frontline pharmacy staff to know about the list and how they can leverage it? First of all, I would say in the hospital setting, I hope pharmacists are aware of it and they know it's out there as a resource to help them in their clinical decision making and also promoting its use and the knowledge of it with other healthcare workers like nurses and physicians. I really hope that this will spread to our colleagues who work in the retail environment. For example, I often hear from physicians I work with, they prescribe doxycycline. I live in New Jersey and so we get Lyme's disease. Quite often, they're prescribing doxycycline outpatient and they complain to me all the time about the calls they get from community pharmacists telling them it's not appropriate for children. I'm really hoping that the existence of the kids list will be a resource in the community setting as well so that pharmacists can feel more comfortable about some of those drugs which sort of had this undeserved reputation, things they learned in pharmacy school, and so they can feel more comfortable using those and that they're perfectly fine to use in kids. I totally agree, Rachel. The greatest opportunity for uptake of the list is in the community setting. There are just so many pharmacies and they reach so many kids that we just don't see every day in our pediatric tertiary centers. Some sort of incorporation of the kids list into their software might be helpful to help support them when they're dispensing medications to kids. Definitely a lot of expansion of clinical pharmacy into the community-based settings as well. So exciting to hear about the prospect of being able to get this work out in front of those folks to help those children. Thank you both so much for joining us today to share your perspectives and expertise. And thank you for doing this work. I'm so glad you could be here with us today. Thank you so much, Gretchen. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this project. Yes. Thank you, Gretchen, for hosting this discussion on the Kids List. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today like us and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. 
Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.